Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly technology and science podcast. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show, Civilian Drones. We'll explore what's next for this ascendant technology. They're much cheaper than the military drones, and that's where the most rapid growth is, and they're being used in a, in a wide range of sort of industrial applications. Also on the show, the science of polling. We need to take polling with a grain of salt, but we shouldn't think of them as incorrect or misleading. And the physicist and author Jeffrey West will tell us more about his theory of scale and how it operates all throughout human society and has us rethink the world, too. If you double the size of a city, you increase wages, the number of educational institutions, the number of patents produced, therefore the innovation of a city. But first, the drones are coming. What was initially a military technology is now rising up as an influential civilian one. Everyone, from filmmakers to farmers, is beginning to see the use of having an unmanned aerial vehicle at their disposal. And the fastest growing part of the drone business is the commercial market. Joining me to discuss these developments is the author of a 10-page report on drones in the latest edition, our deputy editor, Tom Standage. Tom, welcome. Hello. Tom, so tell me, what's actually happening in the drone business? Something quite interesting is happening in drones. If you look at drones numerically, then the most plentiful drones in the world are the sort of toy consumer drones. And there are you know, a few million of those uh, around in the air being sold by companies like DJI and others. And, you know, many people may have got a drone of some kind under the Christmas tree. So they're kind of the, the most abundant. And then if you look at where most of the spending on drones is, something like 90% of the spending on drones is on military drones. And there aren't so many of them. They're just much more expensive. But if you look at where the growth is, the growth is in between. And this is um, the area of uh, civilian drones, which are, they're basically bigger than the consumer drones. Um, they're kind of like beefed up consumer drones uh, and they're much cheaper than the military drones and that's where the most rapid growth is and they're being used in a, in a wide range of sort of industrial applications. So tell us a little bit about these applications. Where are they being put to work? Initially they're essentially flying sensors, flying cameras and the most promising market to start with looked like it was going to be agriculture. You fly a drone, it's usually a fixed wing drone, not a quadcopter. Uh, you fly it over a, a field and it uses special uh, hyperspectral cameras which can see crops in a range of uh, colours beyond the range of human eyesight. But essentially there's a, there's a particular way that you can again combine the way that the different kinds of sensors uh, see the crops. You can work out where you need to apply more you know, pesticide or fertiliser or water or whatever. And then you you 
essentially download a uh, a program that you put into your GPS controlled tractor, and it then drives up and down the field and sprays the right stuff in the right places. And as a result, you in theory get higher yields and use fewer chemicals and so on. So people were very excited about that. And then what happened was that quadcopter drones, uh, the sort that DJI make, they, they kind of look like a large buzzy insect sort of drone, became much more capable or much more popular. And actually, they're not so good for agriculture because they haven't got uh, quite as much range. Uh, and they're being used in other areas. And a particularly interesting one is construction. In construction, it's useful because you can see how much of the thing you're building you've built, how much raw material is sitting around on the site. When you're building something like a road or a railway uh, and you've shaped the landscape have you done it right sending people out with manual equipment to measure that used to take a long time and when you were building a road or something you would do it every two months maybe you could do it every day with a drone so those are the sorts of things that people are doing now it's flying sensors okay so in both of those examples that you've given us the drone is able to do what we already have done manually but just do it more effectively have you actually seen examples of drones doing things that you just sort of wouldn't imagine things it being done before until we had drones to actually do it. Yeah, there are some there are some more interesting uses of drones where, and this is always what happens with the new technology, they get applied to the old uses first, and then people go, well, actually, if you've got a technology that can do that, then you know, we could do this. So some of the some of the crazier things are using small drones to pollinate flowers. People are worried about, you know, bee populations. Uh, and now, you know, there are people working on passenger drones. So essentially flying cars, flying self-driving cars, if you like. That's probably a bit crazy. And then there's the idea of sort of what are called energy kites. And these are like flying drones with a tether. So they take off, they're like a wing with a bunch of um propellers and they take off vertically and then they fly up into the air and then they loop round and round and round uh, on a tether and they're like a flying wind turbine and essentially you get more reliable winds at higher altitudes and so you can build this kind of flying drone kite thing uh, that generates as much power as a wind turbine but only uses 10% of the material. So there's some really interesting stuff going on there. The one everyone's heard of is drone delivery and if you talk to the drone companies what's really interesting is that the drone makers themselves are not that interested in delivery. They say that's a really hard problem. We have to solve so many difficult things in order to make that work. They're not focused on that as a near-term application. Um, DJI say it's not on their radar. But if you talk to the logistics companies, they're all interested in drones and how drones can, can change things. And so we're hearing a lot in the press about drone delivery, but it's actually further away than people think it is because it's you've got to deal with the safety, you've got to deal with the regulation, you've got to deal with air traffic control. There's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to happen before that can become a reality. So it's seems like there's a big role for regulation and different countries will have different policies placed onto drones. Is there any place that's doing it well that you think, well, gee, the market's really going to burst open here as opposed to there because they've got the policy environment right. The FAA in America introduced these rules about licensing commercial drones last year. Essentially, they had to because there were so many consumer drones taken to the sky. They had to come up with a system for keeping track of what was going on. That opened the door to commercial use. Lots of other countries are following the U.S. example because anything that works in the U.S., which has the most complex airspace in the world, will work elsewhere. But they're then moving on and trying other things. The Japanese, for example, are very interested in uh, going 
going faster on delivery drones, partly as a way of addressing the lack of labour that they have to work in delivery. So it looks like they're going to take the lead there, and lots of other countries are looking at how that's going to work. So there's this interesting dynamic of competition and cooperation. The regulators are stealing each other's homework and seeing what what works and what doesn't. But they're also trying to provide the most attractive environment for drone startups to go and uh, do things. And we've seen, you know, Google and Amazon have been flying drones in Australia and Canada and other places that have particularly friendly regulations. Tom, that's really interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Tom's 10-page report on drones in the latest issue on the newsstands now. And if any of you have found innovative uses for drones in industry, let us know. You can email us at radio at economist.com. Next up, the concept of scale. In economics, we know we get increasing returns to scale. The more we make, the less cost each additional unit is to produce it. Likewise, in technology, the ability to scale or increase in size without diminishing performance is central to high-growth companies, social media networks, and even machine learning algorithms. But can the same patterns that appear in one domain, like biology, explain other domains, like the growth of cities or the longevity of companies? My guest today believes that there is a relationship. Jeffrey West is a theoretical physicist by training and formerly the president of the Santa Fe Institute, an interdisciplinary research center exploring complexity theory. And he's the author of a new book, fittingly titled, Scale, the Universal Laws of Life and Death in Organisms, Cities, and Companies. Jeffrey, welcome. Lovely to be here, Ken. Thanks for inviting me. How did you actually come up with this idea that there's these universal properties in all these phenomena? The first thing is to collect enormous amounts of data. And when you look at a characteristic or metric about a system, whether it's an organism, a city, or a company, to ask questions about how does that change with size? And that's scale. And what you discover, whether it's organisms, cities, or companies, there are extraordinarily systematic, regular behavior where you would not at all expect it because all of these systems we think of as being very organic, therefore sort of under the laws of evolution and natural selection, a certain randomness, a uniqueness of each component. Now, can you give us one very classical, basic relationship so that we can understand what you're talking about? So a good example is uh, metabolic rate, which is you know a fundamental quantity of any system for that matter. But it's how much uh, energy, how many, how much resources are required to keep it alive. You might have expected either that uh, because everything evolved by natural selection, there wouldn't be any correlation because everything is historically contingent. Or you might think, on the other hand, look, if you double the size, you double the number of cells, you should require twice as much energy. Or if it were a city, uh, you double the size of the city twice as much resources and so on. In neither case is that true. For an organism twice the size, you require only 75% as much energy. There's an extraordinary, systematic, predictable economy of scale. And in cities, it's not 75%, it's 85%. But in cities, you also get this marvelous increasing returns to scale in socioeconomic activity, in things like wages, in things like jobs. So let me look at that a little bit more closely. There is this view among some people that as the world becomes ever more complicated and infused with technology, if only we could go back to this hearkened halcyon day of artisanal living and country life, people who pine for the rural and see the cities as this cauldron of stress, evil, and inefficiency. But it seems to me that your theories point in the other direction. Exactly. So that is that kind of 
dark Dickensian image of a city. Well, quite the contrary, actually, because cities have been the engine that we invented, this extraordinary machine we invented, to facilitate social interaction, leading to wealth creation, leading to ideas, leading to innovation. That's what cities are for. And if you look at the evolution of society and of economic systems over the last 200 years, it's all highly correlated. You can go as far as, say, predictable in terms of the evolution of cities. Just to give an example, if you double the size of a city, you increase wages, the number of educational institutions, the number of patents produced, therefore the innovation of a city, the number of fancy restaurants, and so on, all by not just double the size, double and add 15%. So there's this continuous increase. Now, you've brought to bear your training as a physicist to look at these different domains and understand them. And as a physicist, you come up with the notion that, indeed, things can expand only so much before there is failure, before things explode, before there is collapse. How do we avoid collapse? One develops a theory to understand why it is that animals grow and then stop growing and remain stable, whereas cities grow and keep growing. And that's extraordinary. And these have this problem that is kind of a Malthusian problem that is this, in fact, uh, sustainable? Can you go on with this open-ended growth forever? And part of this work was to incorporate into that Malthusian argument, which is wrong, the idea of including innovation, which has been the mantra for always saying we're very smart, we can always innovate, and we'll always get out of it, so don't worry. So this theoretical framework incorporates that into it, and indeed it does show that uh, you can keep open-ended growth indefinitely if you have cycles of innovation. The catch is that you have to do that faster and faster. You have to accelerate innovation. And the question is, can you continue accelerate? Or are you on a treadmill that you continue accelerate so you're going to have a socioeconomic heart attack? And the underlying mechanism that drives this is social networks, the way people interact with each other, our culture, and so on. And so I have concluded that innovation simply postpones the problem. The only way out of this, ultimately, is that we need to change something fundamental in our social interactions. But shouldn't your theory allow me not to feel worried? Because what we've been able to see over time, granted, retrospective data, is that whenever we're at the point of collapse, lo and behold, something comes to help us. And here, too, we might find that we will all become bodhisattva-like, give up our extra cars for simply consuming what we have in a more sufficient manner. Yes, I would like to think that that will happen. But when we think of innovation, we tend to think of it almost uh, exclusively in the technological sphere. So when one thinks of the next innovation, one thinks of something as mundane as driverless cars. But in fact, I think the one that will get us through will be something that's a little more nebulous, which is to do with social innovation. Something critical has to change in our governance, in our culture, the whole question of wanting more, which has driven us, not necessarily negative quality, but something has to change in the way we interpret growth, and it has to be somehow associated with social change. That's really fascinating. Jeffrey, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to have been here, Kane. Thank you very much. Finally, polling. Heading into the final days of Britain's general election last week, an array of polls showed widely different outcomes. Some predictions, therefore, did well. Some did not. Here's Robert Worcester, the founder of the polling agency Mori and a pollster of over 50 years. 
This time in Canterbury, the constituency down in Kent is a good example of it. When the students are in session, there are as many students on the campus as there are in Canterbury itself, in the constituency. And if they turned out, they can win seats. And for the first time in a hundred years, Labor has won Canterbury's seat. That's a very good example, I think, of the difficulty that we have, not just getting the voting attention right, but getting the turnout right. And this time, some pollsters were skeptical that the young people would turn out, but they did. Unsurprisingly, public confidence in pollsters has taken another hit. But could they be getting a hard time? Joining me to discuss this is our data journalist, Idris Kaloon. Hello, Idris. Hi, Ken. Idris, pollsters have got it wrong when it came to Trump, when it came to Brexit, when it came to lots of other elections around the world. So is there a problem with polling now, or is this just really hard stuff? It's definitely hard stuff. And some of the big misses that we think of are actually much closer than we thought. In Brexit, more polls came out showing leave ahead than remain during the short campaign period. And in the U.S. election, the national polls were actually spot on. It was bad state polls that were the problem. Now, it's important to know that all polls will have margins of error beyond what are reported in papers. And we need to take polling with a grain of salt, but we shouldn't think of them as incorrect or misleading. So how should polling be done properly? Well, the big thing you need to do is make sure that your samples are representative, and that is harder now because fewer people want to pick up the phone. Polling companies are looking to the Internet to recruit samples instead of randomly dialing them up, but they need to make sure that their samples are still representative. So YouGov had a big problem where in the 2015 poll, they were off by a few points because they were oversampling politically interested voters, and disinterested voters tend to be more Tory, and you should also include them as well. And as we move into the big data era, we can do other techniques to collect our samples. Is that going to increase accuracy, or is that going to create more woolishness? Well, it should create accuracy if the models are right. Statisticians say garbage in, garbage out. You have to know how to calibrate your models correctly. What this allows us to do is find out new political axes. So, for example, in Brexit, the traditional left-right divide didn't really predict how you were going to vote in the referendum, but your attitudes towards authority did. If we had access to more data on people, we could try and figure out these political leanings and these new dimensions before they kind of arise and create polling error. My final question to you is if you could have like one silver bullet to solve some of the problems that you're, we're facing in terms of polling, what would it be? Is there any one thing that would remedy the problems and improve the polling that we get? Mandatory response would be one. So in other words, we shoot people unless they respond to our polls. That's <laughs> not going to be a good one. Do you have a second one? I can't think of one off the top of my head. So we just have to slog through. It, it's a Sisyphean task, right? As soon as you fix one problem, another one crops up and you only realize that it's wrong after you've had an embarrassing election. But that is, you know, one of the nice things about pollsters is that unlike pundits who don't really take back their mistakes, uh, pollsters own up to them and try to change their methods after every mistake. And, you know, they've actually done a, a pretty good job. Great. Listen, Idris, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you. Sadly, all good things come to an end, and so does this week's Babbage podcast. Don't forget to check out our new blog for the podcast at medium.economist.com. And if you like our journalism, consider subscribing to the newspaper. Go to subscription at economist.com. In London, this is 
The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.